All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, we are continuing our Easter celebration this morning. I told you guys last week that Easter was uh, too big of a day to keep contained to a single Sunday. And so we are going back to Hebrews 10 this morning, and uh, we're going to continue developing our thoughts and our celebration of the risen Christ, uh, because He is risen. Do you remember? Let's try it again. Let's try it again. He is risen. risen Praise God. All right, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. And in our Bibles, you're going to page 1007. We're going to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25. All right, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Starting in verse 19, therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near the word of the Lord. All right, last week I explained that this passage is made up of of two parts, really. You have in the beginning a, a provocative statement followed by three applications, okay? And that provocative statement is kind of what we dug into last week. And and at the heart of it is is that simple statement, we have confidence, right? We have confidence that Jesus not only died, but rose from the dead, right? Last week, we took a look at the reality that, that there really are only two options, right? Either the church made up the resurrection story or the resurrection made the church, and I made the, the assertion last week that um, not only is it reasonable, but I think it's very persuasive uh, when we look at the evidence to see that actually Jesus did rise from the dead. It is, in fact, um, one of the most, most provocative and, and I think one of the most intellectually um, satisfying ways to actually look at the evidence and, and uh, make sense of what actually happened. And then we took a look at the fact that because He did rise from the dead, we have access and we have welcome, right? Uh, we have access and we have welcome. Verses 19 through 21, uh, just to review, he said, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through the new and living way that he opened up through the curtain that is his flesh, that means we have access. Jesus died for us, right? He, he, he became the living temple, the meeting place between man and God, and he became the, uh, the good and perfect sacrifice. He actually became the embodiment of our offense. He died in our place and satisfied God in regard to our guilt, our shame, and our sin. He, he became the perfect sacrifice. And through the, the, the tearing of the curtain, through the tearing of His flesh, we now have access to the very presence of a holy God, not based on our ability to, to bridge that gap, but because Christ bridged it for us. He satisfied God in regard to our sin, and then He covered us uh, with His righteousness. And so we have access, and then not only do we have access, we have welcome, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. 
When we, when we go through that curtain, we're not standing alone, uh, naked and shivering before a holy God. We have a great priest who is, in fact, waiting for us to represent us before God. He, he, he is uh, not only the, the perfect temple, the perfect sacrifice, he's the perfect priest. The one who actually ushers us into the presence of God, represents us, speaks for us, covers us. So we have access and we have invitation, right? So we believe God raised Jesus from the dead physically. And as crazy as that is, I think there is something that's even more crazy. I think it is easier for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus than in what it accomplished. I think it's actually easier for us to believe in the resurrection of Jesus than to believe in what it accomplished. I think it's easier to believe that Jesus rose from the dead than to believe that we are fully loved and accepted in Him. We have a really hard time believing that. I think sometimes it's easier to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead than to believe that the all-holy, all-powerful God fully loves and accepts us in Him. So Barnabas, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, um, doesn't spend time trying to convince us that Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's not what he does. He, he, in fact, spends much more time coaching us, leading us, uh, teaching us how to fight to experience the love of God in the resurrection, how to actually enter into the benefit that the resurrection of Christ won for us. So that's where we get to the three statements in our passage. There are three statements that begin with, with let us, right? Since, there are two since statements. Since we have access through the sacrifice of Christ, and, and since we have such a great priest who ushers us into the presence of God, let us, right? There are three applications, and uh, that's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. So first of all, verse 22, I'm going to put it on the screen so that I can keep it in front of us as we go through. Since we have access and since we have welcome, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart. So what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean to draw near with a true heart? All right, we talk about doing things with with our heart. We, we sometimes talk about doing things with all our heart. Um, and I don't think a lot of times we even really understand what we're saying. Uh, if you were to really dig in and say, well, what does, that, what does that mean you're doing it with all your heart? Well, I don't know. I guess I feel it when I do it. Yeah, but do you feel it with all your heart? Like with everything? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not, right? What does it mean to, to draw near with a true heart? I think what he's saying is very simply this. We need to draw near with integrity. The word true is the same word as our English word integrity. It means to have a wholeness to it, a, a strength to it, right? Somebody that has integrity has the strength of authenticity. It's, it's real, right? What he's saying is, is don't go through the motions. Don't fake this thing. Don't, don't draw near with, with, with uh, um, a, a mild appreciation of this truth, Right? If you believe in Jesus, if you believe He rose from the dead, then you should draw near with a true heart. So how would we approach without a true heart? What does it look like when we do that? That might be easier to explain. What does it look like? I think there are two primary ways 
we try to draw near to God without a true heart. And that's through pretending and performing. Pretending and performing. I think those are the two, in fact, the two default modes of our heart when it comes to approaching God, right? When we're pretending, it's our way of of dealing with our sin, right? There's a gap. We all know it. There's a gap between who I am and who I should be. You know what I'm talking about? You know that gap, right? That, that you, you know who you are, and you have this idealized image of who you should be. And, and whether you're a believer, and you compare that to the Word of God, or an unbeliever, and you're just comparing it to your own standards, we all have the gap, right? We all know that there's a gap between who I am and who I should be. How do you fill that gap? How do you cover that shame? How do you deal with that guilt, right? When there's a gap in your in your, in your uh, friendships, in, in how you're relating to people, a gap in your marriage, and in, in, in how you're being a husband or a wife, a gap in your parenting, and in, in how you're relating to your kids, a gap in, in your own personal performance, a gap in, you know, how do you deal with that, right? Pretending, I think, is one of the primary ways that we often deal with that gap, that place of guilt and shame. We, we pretend to be what we aren't, <laughs> Right? If there's a gap between what I am and what I should be, I just pretend to be what I should be. I do my best to make sure people think that of me, right? Um, because when they think that of me, it's easier for me to think that of myself. And that's why we fight all the way to church and then walk in with our public faces on. Some of you did that this morning, right? That's why we... We work so hard, even though our kids are little demons, to make them appear to be little angels, right? We want them all lined up and quiet when we're out at a restaurant, right? We, we love it when the waiter comes by. Oh my goodness, your children are so well-behaved. Yes, they are always like this, right? It's, it's, it's why um, our marriages are struggling, but we don't ask for help. It's why we're, we're struggling with hidden sin, hidden weaknesses, hidden addictions, hidden things that, that we don't even like to see and we don't invite people in to see them. Why not? It's why we wrestle with depression and exhaustion, but we make sure that, that we have a public face that doesn't betray what we keep hidden. We're pretending. That's, that's how we deal with the gap, right? We're pretending. We're, we're looking at, at how we want to be and pretending to be that, right? And, and, and our culture even reinforces that, right? You got to look like the success you want to be. It's one of the phrases you hear a lot in business, and you got to look like the success you want to be, right? So, so you fake it till you make it, right? So, so fake it till you make it. Act like the person you want to be, and then you'll become the person you want to be right? That is a lie. (laughs) I don't know if you know that yet. It is a lie. You can't fake it till you make it. You're not going to make it. You can't fix yourself, right? Pretending is a way of hiding your shame, not fixing your shame. Pretending is a way of, of, of minimizing your guilt, not cleansing your guilt. It's a way of honestly making the sickness worse, not fixing it. We pretend. Because when people think we have it all together, we're like, if they think that, then maybe I should think better of myself. We like it when people say good things about us. We like it when people look at us in favorable ways because 
because we're so desperate to think that way of ourselves. So we pretend. Now, pretending seldom goes without performing, right? Because the reality is we hate pretending, don't we? Let's be honest. Don't we hate pretending? Don't we hate all the hiding? Don't we hate all the pressure to, to look right and be right and, and make sure people manage people's expectations and manage what they think of us and manage how we look and manage all that stuff, right? So pretending, um, <clears throat> we, we hate pretending, <clears throat> so we perform. Now, performing is the work we do uh, to try to fix the gap between who we are and who we know we should be, right? It's our effort to, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by trying to fix ourselves. So we have all of our little self-improvement projects. What are yours right now? All right, we all have them. What's your little self-improvement project right now? Probably, probably a lot of people in here have health self-improvement projects, right? And, 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 and if we're honest, it has way more to do with body image than it does with actually being healthy. <laughs> more people would be more content to look good than actually be healthy. Let's just be honest, because we want people, we, it's that pretending performing thing, right? So maybe for some of you, it's work-related, maybe production-related, maybe income-related, right? But we have all of these ways of, of trying to fix ourselves, to, to perform, right? And it makes us feel better about ourselves. And when we're honest, it helps us feel better about others. And we don't like to admit that part. But that's why you can go to the gym for like a week. You felt sore muscles for the first time in a year. And you see somebody like sitting and you're like, look at that lazy person. They are so lazy. They can't even walk right now. I have sore muscles. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we, can, we can do something for a day and all of a sudden start judging people that, that aren't doing it because we've been doing it for our whole lives. Really, we've been doing it for 24 hours. You know what I'm saying? Well, we, we, we fill the gap with performance to make ourselves feel good about ourselves to make ourselves feel better than others. All right, when, when he says, listen to me, when he says, let us draw near with a true heart, he's saying we need to do it without pretending and we need to do it without performing. We need to draw near in full assurance of faith. Let me ask you something. Why do you pretend? Why do you perform? It's because you don't really believe you're loved. I'm just going to give you the answer. You pretend and you perform because you don't really believe that God unconditionally, radically, head over heels, loves you in spite of you. Because you don't feel lovable, the conclusion must be, I am not fully loved. We pretend and we perform because we're not standing in the strength of being loved by God, right? We have a hard time believing that Jesus really took all of our shame, all of it, that, that, he, that he became the embodiment of it. He died on the cross and left it there, right? He stepped into that gap between what you are and what you should be, and he died. And when he rose again, man, he filled that gap with his record, not yours. We have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time resting in the fact that, that God no longer judges us because He judges Jesus in our place, right? Most of us are, are just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, like well, if I well, wonder if I sinned too much this week. I didn't quite measure up this week. I don't think I performed well enough this week. And so we think God is sitting back with this 
this look of disapproval on his face, just waiting for us to perform a little more, pretend a little better, just make ourselves a little more likable. It's because we don't believe we're loved. Doesn't, we don't believe that we're fully accepted, right? All that pretending and performing is to protect your pride. But what you need to understand is that it also prevents you from experiencing the love of God. When you pretend and perform, not only is it is self-protection to protect your, your little altar of pride in your heart, it actually becomes a wall that becomes a barrier to you experiencing the love of God in Christ. It doesn't change God's love for you, but it changes your experience of God's love for you. God doesn't love you any less when you pretend and perform, right? Because you can't make Him love you any less. You can't do anything to make Him love you more. You can't do anything to make Him love you less. But, but you can do something that actually gets in your way of experiencing God's love for you. When we pretend and perform, we're leaning on the wrong thing. We're, we're looking to the wrong thing, right? To step out of the shadows, to approach God and others honestly, without all the covering up, without all the pretending and performing, man, that takes faith. That's why it says, let us draw near with true hearts, in the full assurance of faith. So the real issue here is this. Where do you place your faith? Do you place your faith in yourself to fix yourself? Or have you abandoned your self-salvation projects? Have you said, I will not put faith in my ability to fix myself. My faith, my full assurance of faith is in Jesus. He took my shame. He is now my righteousness. He took my guilt. He is now my record. He took everything that was bad, and I am now covered in His love. You see, see, it really is a matter of where you place your faith. You're going to put your faith in yourself to fix yourself, your faith in yourself to make yourself look good, your faith in yourself to somehow solve your own problems, or are you going to abandon your self-salvation projects and rely on God's? Allow God's salvation project to define you and free you, to simply rest in the fact that Jesus loves you in spite of you. He doesn't love you because He found you attractive and and there's a risk He might not later. He loves you because He chose to love you, and in His love, He makes you attractive. See, when we come honestly, when we come humbly, when we own our brokenness, when we don't try to fill that gap between what we are and what we should be, but we actually um, uh, allow the, the light to come in and expose us, um... We are, in fact, stepping forward in the faith that we're covered. See, that's the only thing that'll actually give us the courage to do it. You'll never have the courage to step out and expose your shame. You'll never have the courage to step out and, 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 and allow that guilt to be opened up, to allow people in, to actually see who you are, to allow God in, to actually see who you are. You, you, won't, you, won't, you won't do it unless you have faith unless you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and because Jesus rose from the dead, you are now invited into His record, not yours. That's what gives you the courage. Because we can't stand being exposed and naked. We can't stand that, that sense of, of, of existential crisis, that place where we are not what we should be. We simply cannot stand that, that, that blinding, brilliant, soul-destroying light. We, we can't, that, that's, unless we're covered in Christ. Because then we're not destroyed, we're loved. Then we, we actually find the abandonment of hope and faith in ourselves and the freedom of hope and faith in Christ. We come honestly and humbly owning our need for His love um, and most open to being loved. So two things happen when we do this. Two things happen when we do this. 
Uh, it cleanses our conscience and it washes our bodies. It's kind of what the end of the verse says, right? Uh, it cleanses our conscience and washes our bodies. A lot of Jewish imagery going on here. Um, the writer of Hebrews was writing from a Hebrew perspective or a Jewish perspective to people with a Jewish perspective, and so there's a lot of references here to the temple and, and the sacrificial system. Uh, this, is, this is temple stuff, right? Moses sprinkled um, the tribes of Israel with sacrificial blood, uh, and it was a way of basically saying, even though you are broken and you have sinned, God accepts you um, because there was a sacrifice, right? The life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what it says in Leviticus, life of the flesh is in the blood. And, and when we sin against God, our life is demanded. And, and God created a, a system in which one would die for another. Now, all of those animal sacrifices were foreshadowing and looking forward to Jesus, right? What he's saying is, is the bloody blood of Jesus has sprinkled your conscience. Your guilt is paid for. That stuff that's weighing you down, it's not yours, that doesn't mean that, that you didn't maybe hurt somebody. That doesn't mean you don't need to apologize. Doesn't mean you need to deal with the relational flack that comes from being an idiot sometimes, right? You say the wrong thing, you still need to go apologize. You hurt people, you need to go, go own it, right? You let people down, you got to come humbly and apologize to them. There's, there's still relational stuff that comes with that. But what it means is that your worth is not defined by how you perform. That guilt that comes in and crushes you because you didn't live up to your own expectations of yourself... You can't fix that. Your conscience is sprinkled clean, not by you fixing yourself, but by recognizing Jesus died for that guilt. And when he rose again, it's no longer yours. You're now covered in the acceptance and the love of God. That's what gives you the boldness to be humble. That's what gives you the strength to come and actually seek relational reconciliation instead of running away and hiding. You ever done that? You ever, you ever said the wrong thing or done a stupid thing and then you avoid that person? Right? Because you're so terrified. You know what you did. You know what you said. You know you were an idiot. And so you try to avoid them. Right? That's your way of trying to fix the problem by not fixing the problem. Right? The way to fix that problem is to recognize that you are forgiven in Christ and then move in that forgiveness, move in that humility back into that relationship. You don't have to pretend and perform. You can own that you were a mess. You can own that you were selfish. You can own that you sinned and ask for forgiveness and seek recon reconciliation because your worth is not dependent on your performance. Your worth is rooted in the blessing and the, and the, the, the free gift of, of Christ. Right, your body washed. It's talking about the ceremonial uh, washing that took place at the temple. When they came and they washed away the defilement of the world, um, I think there's something actually really profound being said here. A lot of times we do try to fix ourselves. We have these besetting sins. All of us have them. Yours besetting sin may not be the same as mine, but, but we all have these besetting sins, these areas of weakness in our lives, these areas where, where no matter how much we struggle, we tend to keep struggling, right? No matter how much we fight, we tend to have to keep fighting, right? How do we deal with habitual sin in our lives? How do we deal with these areas of, of radical weakness? How do we actually wash our bodies, right? How do we actually move into the purity that we know God expects of us? How do we become more like Jesus? You don't do it by pretending. That just covers the shame and buries it and allows it to become more powerful. And you don't do it by performing because you can't fix it. You can't fix your own heart. You know how you do it? By being loved, 
Love is the only force powerful enough in the universe to actually change your heart. You don't fix this, whatever that besetting sin is, by attacking it head on, as if you could do it in your own strength. You go root yourself deeply in the experience, the love of Christ, the fact that because He died and rose again, you are cleansed and forgiven. God loves you that much that He adopted you as His son, as His daughter, has given you a new identity and a new name. You believe in that. That kind of love has a way of melting your heart. And when your heart gets melted by love and grace, sin has a way of dying in your life. You'll be changed, not because of self-effort, not because you're so great, not because you can white-knuckle it, but because God comes in and actually reorients the desires of your heart. As once again, you are centered on the love of God instead of your love for self, right? God will wash your body. He died for your guilt. He removed your shame. It isn't yours anymore. So as we draw near with true hearts and full assurance, grace does its cleansing work in our lives. As we experience God's love, we are, we are changed. So God wants to free you from the enslavement of your sin. God isn't waiting for you to fix your sin, right? It's not like, go perform, then I'll love you. He's saying, I will love you And in that love, you will be changed, right? It's not go fix yourself and then draw near. It's draw near and love me in response to my love for you. And my love will change you. It will wash you and it will free you. All right, anyone who has been a believer for more than five minutes knows that this isn't easy, right? New believers are awesome, right? They're so drunk on grace, man. They, They just are so drunk in the love of God. They're like, I'll never sin again. I, I lay it all at the feet of Jesus. I surrender all. And they mean it. Like they really think they can surrender it all. How foolish they are, right? I mean, seriously, after you become a believer for a little while, you realize that, that this thing's a process, right? The, the, the benefit of the work of Christ is yours instantaneously. Your experience of the work of Christ takes time. You have to grow in grace, right? Your change often comes slowly and even painfully. Your conscience will continue to condemn you. Your shame will continue to seek to reclaim you and enslave you. So you need to not only draw near, you need to hold fast, right? Verse 23, since we have access and since we have welcome, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession. You will be tested. Your faith will be tried. You will fail. And there will be times you feel like God gets it wrong in your life. And there are going to be times you know you got it wrong. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I love this verse. I absolutely love this verse. It is so empowering. It is not saying, hold fast to God or you might get lost. Like you're a little kid holding your, your dad's hand in a, in a crowded area and you keep getting jostled and bumped and man, you better hold on to that hand because you lose that hand, you might never find him again. That's not what it's saying, right? It's not saying that, that, that you better hold on to your right behavior 
or you might be rejected. You better be moral. You better be good. Because he's watching like cosmic Santa Claus, trying to figure out if at the end of the day you're going to get your present, right? It's not what it's saying. It's not what it's saying. It's not saying hold on to your religious performance. It's not saying hold fast to, to what you think about yourself or what people think of you. It's saying hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. What is our hope? That He is faithful. Not that I am. Hold fast to the truth that He's holding fast to you. Remind yourself that you're not secure because you took hold of Christ. You are secure because Christ took hold of you. You are not secure because you measured up. You're secure because He did. You're not secure because you fixed yourself. You're secure because He lived the life you should have lived. And He died the death you deserve to die. He who promised is faithful. Even when I fail, He won't. Even when I'm struggling to see the light of faith, He hasn't lost sight of me. Hold fast to the confession of our hope. This is not an appeal to work harder or do better or you might be rejected. It is an appeal to believe. Not just that Jesus was raised from the dead, but because He was raised from the dead, you are completely made new. You stand no longer in your performance but His, no longer in your righteousness but His. You are loved and you are forgiven. Believe it. And even when everything in your life seems to be going the wrong way, even when you seem to have lost all self-control, believe it or not, He's making you like Jesus. He's changing you. Even when you're looking at the vine and it looks like it's dead, you're like, where's the fruit in my life? Where's the fruit in my life? Our confession of hope recognizes that the fruit in my life is not dependent on my ability to produce fruit. (laughs) It's dependent on the ability of the vine, my root, and God will produce fruit. He who began a good work in me will complete it will complete it. Philippians 1.3. Your confidence isn't in your ability to get it right, it's in His. All right, I've been walking my dogs for years. I have two giant labs, um, Bear and Kentucky. Not a very good picture. It's really hard to get them in the same photo at one time. Uh, found a lot of photos of them individually. Getting them in the same spot to sit still is actually pretty difficult. Uh, Bear and Kentucky. Uh, Tuck, the older dog, um, <laughs> the yellow lab. Um, he has always, I've been walking these dogs for years. I mean, for years. And Tuck always drags behind me. He's one of these dogs that, that is always like at the end of the leash behind me, right? And there are times my arm is like this as I'm walking along, right? I mean, he just is very reluctant to follow me. Uh, he wants to walk his pace. He wants to smell his smells. Um, when he was younger, uh, he's a little older now. That makes him weak a little bit. But, but when he was younger, man, he, he would put up a fight. There were times like, like he broke a leather collar. Like, like he would just set all 85 pounds of himself against me. And I'm just like this, right? So eventually I got smart and got those little pinch collars, right? They seem like they're so mean, man. They really help, right? 
Because instead of dragging, I just pop him, right? You just pop it. And it's a way of training the dog. And, and so he would learn to follow, but he never liked it. Um, Kentucky did not like that. Um, and here's the thing. I, you know, you look at that and you're like, he, he just didn't trust me. He's like, hey, you're getting it wrong. The good stuff's over here. Stop taking me over there. The good stuff's over here. You're getting it wrong. And I'd have to pop the collar to get him to follow me. Now, Bear, on the other hand, was always out in front. Like, it's always, and so I'm walking like this. I'm not even kidding. Some of you have seen me, you know, walking through Essex. I mean, this is, this is me walking through. You know, Bear is, is all the way out front. Now, what's interesting about Bear is he really wants to follow me. He is a very obedient and very trainable dog, and he wants to follow me. He doesn't have the patience. And so we're walking down the trail, and he's like all the way out front, just, just yearning to, to go faster and, and keep moving, right? And he just doesn't, once that ends up happening, you just come to a Y in the trail. You know those, right? You're coming and, and you go down through a tunnel or you go up to the left and he sees it coming. And I can see him, his body actually tenses up the closer we get because he doesn't know what direction we're going to go. And, and he gets full of anxiety and, and he starts glancing back. And I'm like speaking to him. I'm like, bear, we're going to go left. <laughs> left, bear, we're going left. He doesn't understand me right? It doesn't help. And so he just, he like tenses, he gets, he, he's like, you know, and, and, and so I'm having to pop his collar because he's like, you know, I'm getting yanked all over the place. Pretty soon he's spinning in circles. Like the closer he gets, he spins in a circle. Like, which way, which, which way, which way? I'm like, stop it, bro. Right? So pretty soon I'm yanking him back and I'm pulling Tuck forward. Right? We're having a great walk. This is, um, <laughs> this is, this is fun. All right, here's my point. We're like that, you guys. Sometimes we're dragging behind, resenting God, sure that He got it wrong. Our life isn't going the direction we want it to go. The, the situation isn't what we dreamed it would be. The opportunities aren't opening up like we thought they would. God is surely getting it wrong. We're dragging behind, and, and we know we are because we're resenting God. We're sure He's getting it wrong. Sometimes we're way out ahead of Him. We want to follow God. We want to do God's will. We, we, we want to, to be in obedience. He's just not going fast enough. And we know we're there when we're full of anxiety. Because we see these big life decisions coming up. We're like, which way, Lord? Which way? Which way? And He's like, you're going to go left. I don't understand you. Right? It's like me trying to talk to my dog. Right? We can't hear God voice like that. He, and he's not going to, you know, he, what is he going to do? He, he's not going to let us lead him and claim it's following. Where's the best place to be? Right there. My dogs, if they would just heal, if they would just heal, it would remove all their anxiety and all their resentment. Because they would know I was right there, and they would know that I was leading them, and they would know which direction to go at the right time to go it. We need to heal our hearts, right? We need to heal our hearts. We need to hold fast to our confession of hope. See, whether that problem in your life is taking you in a direction you didn't expect or didn't want to go, or it's that 
God doesn't seem to be getting it right, or that your heart is condemning you because there's some sin that's just being painfully slow to change, or because you feel like you're failing as a Christian, as a friend, as a spouse, as a parent, or just failing in general at adulting. The safest, most peaceful place to be is by His side, reminding your heart that He is faithful. See, I have hope, not because I hold on to Him, but because He holds on to me. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and finally in verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Since we have access and since we have welcome, let us consider how to stir one another up to a deeper experience of grace. So this whole drawing near thing, right? Draw near in the full assurance of faith. And this whole a holding fast thing, right? Hold on, hold fast to your to your uh, confession of hope that that He is faithful. Um, God never intended you to do this stuff alone. God never intended you to be isolated in in your fight to really believe the truth of the gospel, to to believe that you are loved and fully accepted because of the work of Christ and to allow that to sink in and change you. Here's the thing, isolation in your Christian life will make you weaker because it will push you back into pretending and performing. It'll push you back into the weakness of pride. It'll push you away from, from how God is pouring out grace to strengthen you. You need people in your life who will stir you up to love and good works to experience and share God's love. Uh, This word, stir up, I love it. Um, Literally, it means to provoke. (laughs) It's often used in a negative sense. Um, So we are to study how to provoke one another to love and good works. I think, honestly, most of us are probably better at knowing how to provoke bad things than provoke good things, right? Some of you, in fact, are really students of how to provoke um, awkwardness, some of you are students on how to provoke um, anger, right? Anybody have a sibling? You know your sibling's buttons better than anybody in the world, don't you? Don't you? And you know what I mean by buttons, right? We're not talking about the buttons of joy, right? The buttons of gratitude, right? We're talking about the buttons of frustration, anger, annoyance, Right? You know them. Spouse, do you not know your, your, your spouse's buttons better than anyone? Right? The people that we're closest to are the people we spend the most time studying, and we get really good at provoking. And a lot of times, what I find, what, the first thing I need to do when I sit down, especially with a married couple who's just in a lot of conflict, they're like, man, I don't even know if this thing can survive. It's like, all right, let's figure out how to stop pushing all the wrong buttons and start figuring out how to push the right buttons. You've gotten so good at protecting yourself and irritating them. You've gotten so good at knowing how to put out the perfect barb at the perfect time. What does it look like to provoke love and good works? All right? When I was young, my brother and I would go on road trips. And um, we, we had this, it was in the you know, 70s, and we had these, these monstrous cars. So it was a monstrous bench back seat. And we didn't have portable DVD players to distract us. 
um, we had ourselves. And, um, and so if you're on a long road trip, you can only read for so long. You can, you can only look out the window for so long. And, and so there was a seam that ran right down the middle of that seat, and that seam marked the two territories. You know what I'm talking about. So I had my territory, and Greg had his territory, right? And, and, and it, was just a, it was just mutually agreed upon. I had my territory, he had his. And, and so after a little while, um, I would just spread out in my territory, which was pretty generous. I mean, these were huge cars, right? And, uh, and so pretty soon I would, I would just stick my hand right over that line. Was I hurting him? No. Was I provoking him? Yes. Yeah. He would look over and he'd be like, dude, dude, you're pinky. Dude. And I'd pull it back. He'd look away. I'd put it back. He'd like, Dude, you know, shove it. It's like, you can't come on my, you, what are you thinking, man? You're invading my territory, right? And, and he'd look away. Pretty soon, I'm like leaning, right? Got my, got my whole shoulder over the seam, right? I'm just leaning in. And by this time, he's just like, man, wham, you know, punches me, right? And then my dad, of course, his eyes are huge in the rearview mirror. He's like, what's going on back there, right? I knew how to provoke both my brother and my dad, right? So my brother, my dad pulls the car over, yanks my brother out of the car. I win, Right? That's, that's how it works. I had studied how to provoke my brother. What if we put that much energy into studying how to provoke one another to grace? What if we put that much energy into studying how to provoke our spouse to joy? Our friends, our community group? To actually think through not just how can I, how can I be friendly to them, but how can I provoke them to a deeper experience of grace so that they know how profoundly they're loved by God. Sometimes that means becoming the embodiment of encouragement to them, right? Like, like recognizing that when they're down, when they're depressed, when there's something's going wrong, you can be the person that steps in, not to fix it, not to coach them, not to tell them how to get it right, but simply to, to be that word of encouragement to them. Dude, that sucks. I know that sucks. And I'm so sorry. Like just meeting them in their pain. Powerful. Right? Being able to look at them and humanize their experience without shame or guilt. Like, yeah, I know you guys had a fight last night, you and your spouse. I get that, man. And I know how heavy that is. Can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? right? No judgment, no. I mean, some of you are like coaches. You just want to step in and fix everything. You need to stop that because it's not your problem to fix. You can't fix other people's heart. You're not Jesus, right? And and sometimes it really is motivated from a good place. You want to be helpful. You hate to feel useless, right? But what you need to realize is that in that moment, they don't need you to fix them. They need you to be the embodiment of love to them because it's love that fixes. It's love that changes the human heart. It's love that frees people, So become the the embodiment of encouragement to them. Become the embodiment of grace to them. What does grace say when someone fails? What does grace say when someone fails? First thing grace says when someone fails, I love you. I love you. First thing grace says, not you disappointed me, not you should, should is a shaming word, right? Some of you need to stop shooting all over people right? You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You think you're being helpful. You're just covering people with shame for real, right? You need to be gracing on people. You need to be showing up and saying, man, I love you. 
Let me pray. If you don't know anything else, just say, let me, how can I pray for you, man? Can I, can I just lift you before God right now? Right? We need to be studying how to provoke people to love and uh, a deeper experience of grace. And that really means becoming really the embodiment of grace. Some of you have a really hard time showing grace to others and leading people into it because you have such a hard time receiving it yourselves. Which is why you need to not only be looking to do it for others, you need to be looking for others to do it for you. You can't be the one who's like, okay, I'll show up and help everybody, but I'll never be helped. I'll be the one who shows up and be an encouragement to everybody, but I'm not going to let people in. I'm not going to be encouraged. You can't do that. That's so prideful. Right? We have to be those who who recognize we need people to provoke us to love and good works, even as we show up to provoke others to love and good works. We need to do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. You guys, this is urgent. This is urgent. This age that we live in is only temporary. This is not all there is, and it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to think that this really is all there is, our experience. Um... But the reality is it's our growth in grace. That's the real stuff. That's the stuff that lasts. That's the stuff that really matters. We have a wide open door into the presence of God, and we have a priest who's standing there with open arms of grace to love us and receive us. And he is coming back to restore what he has redeemed. And as we see that day drawing near, which means every single day, we need to recognize that we're here for a purpose and, and, and our primary purpose here is, is not to be productive or to build up a great 401k or to fix ourselves as if somehow we could or to fix others. Or Our primary purpose here is to experience grace and share grace. The rest of it's secondary. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? The resurrection of Jesus makes this clear. This is not all there is. And this is not what's most important. So let's encourage one another and strengthen one another in our experience of grace. All right, today we're going to respond um, to this in in two very tangible ways. We're going to respond through communion, uh, which we do every week. One of our elders are going to come up and and, uh, explain that. If you're new with us, don't worry. Um, But we are going to have baptisms today as well, um, which is really exciting. I love it when we get to celebrate baptisms. Um, And so... Uh, I want to take a moment and just explain why we do it and how we do it. Um, we're going to be doing it after we, we take communion. So I'm going to ask you all to stick around um, so that we can um, share the experience together. Why do we baptize? Because Jesus commanded it, right? We didn't make this up, right? Jesus said, go out and make disciples um, and, uh, and baptize them in my name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And so he basically said, be disciples who make disciples. And as people become believers in Jesus, as you disciple unbelievers into the faith, they should be baptized, right? They should be dunked. And, and, and that celebration, that baptism is symbolic of a spiritual reality that when you believe in Jesus, you're no longer who you were. You're not who he's declared you to be. You're, you're no longer what you've done or what's been done to you. You are now defined by what he has done for you and the righteousness he has placed on you, right? So when you go down under the water, it is symbolic of, of your death being united with his death, that Jesus died for you and his death is your death. He died for your guilt. He died for your shame. He died in your place. And when you are raised up out of the water, 
is symbolic of you rising in new life in the resurrection of Christ, that you're now covered in the righteousness of Christ. You're now covered in His resurrection life, His record, not yours. Now, baptism itself doesn't do a thing, right? Baptism isn't what does that. It's, it's believing in Jesus that does it. It's, it's faith that does it. Baptism is the, the symbol of the reality. And so we baptize to, to celebrate when someone passes, in a sense, from death to life, when they believe in Jesus and, and they are now marked by the resurrection of Christ and secure in Him. So I want to give you the same appeal that I gave last week. We got to celebrate baptisms last week, and, and uh, I'm going to give you the appeal this week. If, if you are a believer in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you have the opportunity to join us this morning. You can be baptized today. And, uh, and I like to speak to the most common objections, because I know as soon as I mention that, some people are going to start thinking, well what, well, what will people think? Or what will this person think? And I understand that's a very urgent and important question, but it's the wrong question. The real question is, what does Jesus think? If you've believed in Christ, you are Christ's. And, and if your Savior says, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, to, to celebrate your faith in me, to celebrate the fact that I died and rose again for you, you should be much more concerned about obeying Him than what people think. Um, do you have to be a member at Trailhead? Not a chance. You have to be a believer in Christ. The only requirement is that you're a member of the church, right? The, the, the capital C church, the universal invisible church, which you are a part of as soon as you become a believer in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Trailhead specifically. And what if my life is a mess? You know what? Our confession of hope isn't that we have our act together. Our confession of hope is that He does, right? We don't get baptized because we have our act together for God. We we get baptized because God got His act together for us. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's what we're celebrating, right? There's a reason Jesus had to die, because you're a mess, right? So that's what we're going to celebrate. What will I wear? We got you covered. We got you covered. We got clothes. Um... Right, we, we, all the way down to the skivvies. Um, we're 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 gonna help you out. You know, you you came in dry clothes. You'll go home in dry clothes. I mean, unless you just get really excited, and, and run up here fully clothed. Um, but but we'll help you. Right, we got clothes for you to get get baptized in. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. If the Spirit of God is stirring your heart, if you are a believer in Jesus, even if you became a believer this morning, don't wait. Don't resist the Spirit of God, right? Don't, don't be reluctant on, on, on the chain, right? Just rest. If it's what the Lord wants you to do, man, we're here to help you do it. We're going to have leaders over by the door. Some community group leaders are going to be over by the door. If you want to be baptized this morning, we would like to have a conversation with you ahead of time. We just want to simply understand your faith and understand and make sure that we're doing the right thing by helping you get baptized. So we're going to help you explore that a little bit. And sometimes um, we'll say to people, you know what, we think you should wait. And there's no shame in that. And sometimes we'll say, you know what, we just don't think it's the right time. There's no shame in that. But we want to help you discern whether or not it's the right move for you. So so go speak to our leaders over by the door. And uh, we'll help you discern if it's the right step. And the rest of you, I'm going to ask you to stick around after the end of the service and help us celebrate, okay? Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response, and uh, we'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that, um, that you raised Christ from the dead. All the way, all the way, all the way, back at the beginning of the story, um, you told 
our first parents, in the day you sin against me, you shall surely die. And they did. They died in their relationship with you. They were separated from the source of life, which led later to their physical death. But you didn't leave them or us hopeless in that condition. You sent Jesus that he might enter the penalty of our sin, that he might enter our death on our behalf and conquer it for us so that death does not have the last word. Because Christ was raised from the dead, we have an eternal hope, a living hope, a freshly slain and vibrantly alive hope. Lord, I pray that you'll wake our hearts up to the beauty, the joy, the power there is. And not only believing in a risen Savior, but knowing that because He is risen, we are fully accepted and fully loved. And Spirit, I pray that you will awaken our hearts to a deeper experience of that love so that, so that we will be freed from using the things you've given us to actually enjoying the things you've given us. Instead of trying to find our identity in our work or our families or our parents, we'll find our identity in, in the beauty of Christ. And then come to actually enjoy your gifts instead of try to use them to do for us what only you can do. And Spirit, I pray this morning, if there are any here that um, are struggling with whether or not they believe this, Spirit, I pray that you will bring them that deep-seated, full assurance of faith, that conviction that Jesus not only died and rose again, but he did it for us. They, you did it for, for him. You did it for her. You took my place. That I might be forgiven and made new. If there are any here struggling with whether or not they should be baptized, Spirit, I pray that you'll bring conviction and clarity. That they might joyfully heal <laughs> to your leading. Man, we love you because you first loved us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.